0: Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Excited to have multiple guests and a guest host today. So it's a very exciting episode on a number of fronts. We're going to be talking about instructional design. We're going to talk about small teaching, small teaching online. We're going to talk about getting distracted, but hopefully we're going to earn your attention throughout this conversation To start, I want to quickly introduce my three fellow interlocutors, beginning with Dr. Don DePerry, uh, who is joining as a guest host. Hopefully, Don will be back on again in the the future, and we'll hear a little bit more from Don in a bit. But, Don, welcome to Trending in Education.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, we're happy to have you. And then, Dr. Jim Lang is a professor of English at Assumption. Univer- is it university or college?
2: We changed the university last summer, actually, so now ah. university.
0: Okay, Assumption University. I didn't want to make any assumptions there. <laughs> but Jim's written some books, done some interesting work. He he also uh, through some of that work met Flower, who is our other guest, Flower Darby. Uh, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And Flower, maybe you can describe yourself, but but you're coming at this instructional space from a teacher and instructional designer perspective. Can you quickly introduce yourself?
3: Yes, of course, Michael. Thank you. I I teach at Northern Arizona University and Australia Mountain Community College. I like the perspectives that both contexts provide to me, and I've been teaching and designing instruction for higher education for 25 years in a range of subjects. Yeah.
0: We love getting origin (laughs) stories, and Dawn, as your first appearance on Trending in Education, I want to hear in your own words who you are and how you got to this point in your career and the world of uh, learning
1: i am a learning designer at harvard university and i work in the graduate school of education and i also own a small business called east end advertising that does graphic design and instructional design and i have taught online face-to-face and hybrid a number of subjects as well including interpersonal communications and individual communications
0: Cool. Yeah. So lots to get into there. But truth be told, I no longer was an instructional designer as of maybe 2004, 2005, I stopped having that title. I think they carved it in stone back in those days. So that was when, when I was doing the instructional design. The world has changed a lot. There's been a lot of evolution over time. And Jim, maybe picking up with you, I know you spent a lot of time thinking about learning. You've written uh, several books in this space. Can you catch us up quickly on what got you involved in this stuff and and how folks might understand you and your work? I
2: first got started when I graduated from Northwestern with uh, my PhD. Actually, it was in my last year of graduate school. I started working with the Northwestern University Center for Teaching Excellence. I was hired as just a part-time role as a graduate student by Ken Bain, who's the author of uh, several great books on higher education, teaching and learning. And Ken did something for me, which has stayed with me ever since. He... He, he did a great job of showing me that the question of how you help another human being learn was a really fascinating scholarly question. And I had never really thought about it that way before, even though I had been teaching for several years as a graduate student at that time, I always thought about what am I gonna do as a teacher? And I didn't really think about the fact, well actually, what I should be thinking about is how are my students learning and what you know is is gonna help and support that? That question has stayed with me ever since. And it's led me to, take what I would call a problem-based approach to faculty development, and especially my research in writing, to try and identify what are the problems and challenges that people face, and what's the literature that can help us um, see our way through those problems. So a couple books ago, I wrote a book about cheating in academic uh, contexts, and the book is called Cheating Lessons because the idea is that we can learn from the research on academic dishonesty how to make better learning environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, my more recent book on distraction, a similar kind of approach. When we look at Why are students distracted? It can help us think more clearly about how to hold their attention, about how their attention supports their learning. Mm -hmm. And then the book project that Flower and I have worked on together, teaching was really about there's so much sort of information and ideas and research out there about how people learn. And there's frequent calls to do things in revolutionary new ways and the system's broken and we have to try all these new things. And I wanted to try to find what were the things that were manageable and practical for faculty to do that they could make positive changes to their teaching and learning environments tomorrow or next week or the next they taught the class without having to rethink everything they were doing because i've always been teaching every semester and i don't have time to to revolutionize my classes every year i just don't but i still want to improve and i and and making changes is, is keeps me active and engaged as well so When you have a kind of slate of these small things that you can do, it not only can help keep moving forward for your students, but it helps you as a teacher stay more energized and engaged and focused.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the agile renaissance that has happened in product development, which is going after manageable, measurable, smaller chunks rather than going waterfall and trying to quote unquote boil the ocean or go bigger perhaps than you're ready to go. And then Flower, I believe from your perspective, some of what james was putting down back in the day around small teaching you were picking up like you you appreciated it because you were in the learning space and you were exposed first to jim as uh, as really a, an academic and as someone had written this book can you describe that piece and then factor that into your origin story
3: Yes. When I read Jim's book, Small Teaching, we were preparing for him to visit our campus and give a talk to faculty. And I was in an instructional designer role, and I knew for a fact that people, faculty would be asking me, how do you do these kinds of things in online environments? So I read the whole book carefully with pencil in hand, thinking about literally structurally how you could implement these ideas and approaches. And also, I was firmly convinced that a lot of people, I would say virtually everybody, which is a funny thing to say now, given recent history, that faculty are just not prepared or adequately equipped to teach in online spaces. That is, you can say that generally about faculty preparation to teach. It, it's lacking in some ways or in a lot of ways, but especially in online, I, I felt like there was such a huge learning curve, such a foreign environment. And so I love that small, doable, feasible approach that Jim proposed. And I thought this has so much potential for online because nobody knows what's going on in online classes, which overgeneralization to say the least. But when Jim came, somebody asked him in the talk, "Who? how do we do these online? And I believe that Jim often says, I don't know. I don't teach online, although that's not true anymore, I'm sure. But back then. And so I walked up to him and I said, you know what? I think we could write this book together. And I really love to give Jim a lot of credit for being willing to work with a complete stranger, a new book project. And the result is small teaching online.
0: Yeah. Which is, is hugely relevant and it connects a lot of dots too. So it explains why we've all assembled in this way. And then we're definitely going to want to dig in more both with you, Flower, and with you, Dawn, on... How instructional design and teaching has been transformed of late by the pandemic. And I think we're also going to want to get at how that relates to the distractions, both for the learner and for the instructor. But to begin, Dawn, you were the connector in terms of bringing this whole thing together. So consider this your platform right now. Where do you wanna go with the conversation?
1: Well, I'm a big fan of you both. I'm a fan because I've been an online learner. I've been an online professor and I've designed online experiences. So wearing all of those caps, I've been empathetic to all three of those entities. And sometimes people have the blame game in online education. Oh, it's not working. The instructor must be doing something wrong, or whatever it is. But I love that your book supports instructors and gives them the tools and suggestions to improve their practice because that's what we need to do right now. Is we need to support our faculty, but we also have to design in an empathetic way for our learners and understand the things that they're going through. And yes, the pandemic has exasperated. Some of those issues that the faculty are experiencing as well as the students, but even not even talking about online, just thinking about small teaching, the original book. Being such a great resource to instructors because a lot of professional development that I've seen, and you mentioned in the book, is, it's like a one-off, one-day full conference, then you don't get it again. And it can be overwhelming to get this influx of information cognitive load-wise. And how am I going to apply it to my own uh, practice where you offer bite-sized pieces of professional development tips that instructors can apply right away. And that's my favorite part. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. And just jumping in there, I'm a sports fan. I'm going to (laughs) help pick up the small ball references.
2: I just finished writing the second edition of Small Teaching, which will be out in August. And actually in the preface... One of the things I write about was I, I considered dropping the whole baseball part of it because there are a lot of academics that are not sports fans. <laughs> I, one of my closest colleagues, actually who Flowers worked with as well, Sarah Cavanaugh, calls all oh, yeah. sports ball and she has zero interest in those kinds of conversations. And also small ball, anything related to baseball, it doesn't always translate internationally and the book yeah. has been translated and I remember working with the Spanish translator and him trying to find a way to explain the, what was the equivalent of this that would make sense. So anyways, there are two origin stories to it. One is the idea of small ball, which is in baseball, most people have a basic understanding of how the game works, but teams can try to do sort of big glamorous things like get hitters that are going to hit grand slam home runs and do a lot of kind of flashy, more like high profile things, or they can focus on the things that you can do that that are um, a lot less glamorous, but that actually can just slowly push you toward a victory. And so. That's called small ball and baseball. And so that's where the term small teaching comes from. But the other origin story for me is, again, after I wrote that book about cheating, I got invited to do a lot of talks. And, and initially I was more arguing for bigger structural changes. And I still think there's value in thinking about, in my view, there's no conflict between a small teaching approach and bigger revolutionary change. There, there's along a continuum. But what I did find was, as you had said, Don, that I'm there in April or in October for a one-time session and a lot goes on between the time I leave and then the time when faculty might have time to plan their next class. And so I started just trying to think, I want, I don't, I want people to like get something out of this. And so I started trying to try and put more and more just small things that you could do on an everyday basis. And I could literally see people perk up in their seats when yeah. something was presented that they could do the next day or the next week or it's whatever. It's
1: like a relief to make these small, smart goals that add up over time.
2: Yeah. And so that's really then just started to do more and more of that in the talks. And then that kind of helped me think about this could be really be a whole approach. And so from there, that led me into the learning research to say, all right, what does the learning research tell us about which of these things would give you the most bang for your buck? What are the changes that are going be most impactful? Yeah. Um, and so those are the two different ways that that got to me. And I still find today when I give talks to people, again, I usually do a little introductory theoretical part to talk about the learning principles. Yeah. But then as soon as I get to the tips, people are like, huh? Oh, boy. And they just start perking up. And I see people take their pens out. And so it's really striking to see. It's very consistent. We're almost all conditioned
0: to be communicated in tips nowadays anyway. It does feel like everything is given in lists. I,
2: I still do feel compelled to help to show people the other parts because I do want them to know tips without a framework can be yeah. them and disorganized, and you don't know why you're applying them, or there's yeah. too many. It's overwhelming. So I think the other thing that I I don't know I don't know why people find it helpful, but what I one of the reasons I think it's helpful is because I have winnowed it down to a small number of principles, mm-hmm. and otherwise it can seem overwhelming. And Flower did an equally good job of that. They're not the same principles. We actually chose different principles, but it's that same approach with the online teaching and learning.
0: Yeah, and I'd love to get there next, I think, because that's where, depending on where we stood maybe a few years ago in terms of the relevance of online instruction, I think everyone's world has been changed in the last year, and I'd love to get some perspective on that, some reflections on that really from all of you. But uh, maybe beginning with you, Flower, in terms of small teaching and, and what resonated with you in those ideas and then thinking about how those needed to be either translated or reimagined when we started talking about moving that online. What have you seen over the years? What really resonated with you in Jim's work? And then what have you been able to focus on as you've really specialized more in the online learning space?
3: Again, I think Jim's approach of distilling things into distilling big complex and potentially overwhelming theories, concepts and approaches into those bite-sized, I I think that's where the value lies. And to be honest, I was pretty surprised, Jim, I don't know if I told you this, that when we very first started thinking about how small teaching online might shape up and you said, and I thought that what I was going to do was to write online applications for each one of your chapters Mm -hmm. and your principles. And you said, no, you you have to think about, you're the expert in this, you need to think about what makes the most sense for online spaces. And so I appreciated that um, freedom to do that. And I do believe that the, the work is stronger, although... Sometimes I am still asked, yes, but how do we do this particular recommendation that Jim has, how do we do that in an online class? But But no.
1: That's true because some is overlap as some is not. Like what works for face-to-face doesn't always work online.
3: And that's actually become increasingly clear to me over this last um, season during the pandemic is an an overarching principle that I believed anyway and advocated for is that we have to teach differently in online spaces. Mm And that has just been strengthened, in my opinion, as I look at faculty working so hard trying to engage students in Zoom or remote synchronous, where some people are in in the classroom and other people on Zoom. Mm -hmm. You can't rely on the same techniques that you would when you're teaching fully in person. And that, like I said, has just become more clear to me. Yeah, Um, And it's
1: exciting, too, because you you think about the theoretical frameworks. I love that. And I find working with faculty, you can bring up the empirical research as the rationale for the changes that you want them to implement, and then they have more buy-in. So I, I love that. It's, it's fun to work with an audience like that. Yeah. What are your top tips for making small incremental changes to improve teaching, both face-to-face and online?
2: I'll start by actually saying something that I got from Flower, because when we switched online, I had not, in, in the spring of 2020, I had not taught online yet. And of course I had worked with Flower on the book and she wrote most of it. I helped a little bit. And, and so of course I read through the whole thing as we were going, but it was in a more kind of disinterested way, just what she was suggesting and thinking about the theories and everything. Then we went online and suddenly I was like, well, what am I supposed to be doing? So I went back and looked at the book again and, <laughs> and there were some, a couple things that really stood out for me. The one was Flower has been a great advocate for discussion boards. And what I really liked about what she has to say about those is. And I actually always say this in my talks now followers that you say, they're not like slow cookers where you're just supposed to, you throw something out there or even online classes are not like this. You have to be engaged. I have to be engaged. And one of my favorite recommendations that um, she gave and which became instrumental to me was when students post in the discussion boards, you don't have to respond to every single one, but I, I made these three to five minute videos where I would say, okay, here's what I saw in the discussion boards and here's three that were really good. Uh, and I named those students. And then I tried to make sure that I named every student over the course of the semester. I just loved that. And I still, Mm -hmm. I just taught another four week online seminar for a European institution, did the same thing there. And I really like it and took value from that. And then the other thing was, there's a great thing that she does at the beginning of the book about sometimes an online class can feel like you walk into a building, the classroom's empty. The textbooks are sitting on the desk. And then you just pick up a syllabus and textbook and leave. And that's how it can feel to start an online class. She makes a good case for having a lot more welcoming and like how to, and this is how things are gonna work in here and frequent touch points. And all that I really took away from her approach and, and applied it in the online courses that I've done since then. So, mm-hmm. to me, those yeah. th- instructor
1: presence really, so yeah. important in online. Yeah,
2: and
0: it, you have to dial it up online. It, it, it's almost a, a caricature of what you might naturally do. You <laughs> almost need to be more over the top, more effusive. <laughs> like, here
1: I am on video again. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I feel i got to be right, on the time. <laughs> Are you tired yeah. of seeing me? <laughs>
0: and I would be curious about that as we think about the challenge of distractedness these days, where, if anything, the there's more opportunities to be distracted in the online world than there are in the physical room arguably and clearly we can all be distracted and folks have access to smartphones and laptops and and all these kinds of things but maybe beginning with you jim when you wrote distracted what were you thinking about and now that the book has been out there for a little while it just came out in, in October. The world has really been changing over the past year. So uh, if you were to take the thinking that was in Distracted and projected forward a little bit, almost the same translation you did with small teaching to small teaching online, how do you think about Distracted and some of the problems that it's surfaced and how we're trying to solve them and then how that's all been impacted by the, the pandemic and, and this crazy year we've all been living through?
2: My goal in distraction was relatively simple. It's just to get people to think less about distractions and more about attention. And attention is so fundamental to learning. It, you might think about learning doesn't even start unless you're paying attention. So we tend to think more about how do we push distractions away from people. But I actually think it's more productive to think about what are the things that cultivate people's attention. And in the book, I tried to look at, again, what are the principles? What does the research tell us about when people pay attention? What captures their attention? What sustains their attention? And how can we use that research in order to build better learning environments that are going to support and sustain student attention? We do tend to think about this as being an especially challenging problem right now. The research does show, if you look back at the historical record, back to Aristotle, people are talking about their easily distractible minds. What's challenging for us now is not so much that our brains have changed somehow. The architecture of your brain is not going to change over the course of 10 years, that's an evolutionary change. But our devices are much better at getting our attention now than they mm-hmm. used to be. And so th- that is a change that we have to think about. And then, of course, that's intensified when we are doing everything through our screens and online. So we need to think about the particular challenges that we face. Now, ultimately, though, you know, the solutions in some ways, they're in principle, are similar. So like one of the chapters of the book talks about the importance of structure, and so what kind of structure sustains someone's attention through an experience that unfolds in time? Mm-hmm. Right? And so, like to there, I actually look and think about like symphonies or plays, and what are the what does a playwright or their composer do that helps keep people's attention over the course of that experience? They give you a program which tells you how it's going to unfold. There's change, there's variety, there's breaks, right? So. It's very rare that we ask people to sit for an hour or two hours and just focus on something that that's almost impossible for us to do, actually. So we need to think about in a learning environment, Okay, we need to be more transparent about this is how this is going to unfold. Right. That's easy to do in class. You write the outline on the board in an online class. Start with a PowerPoint slide that says, here's what's going to happen today. We're going to do these six things. And we need to be signposting throughout. So we you know we're going to do this one more thing. Then we'll have our break. Then we're going to come back and do this. I always say to people, think about like when you're in academic lectures and someone gets up there and just starts talking, you have no idea how long it's going to go, you have no idea like what the main ideas are and the, your mind just starts to drift, right? yeah. But when you have a speaker that says, okay, I've got three points I'm going to make today, here's an argument. And then throughout says, okay, that's the end of part two, now part three. Those are the moments in which you go, oh, okay, yeah, right. And then you come back into the experience. I think that kind of structural thing we can always do in face-to-face and online. Um, In terms of the change in variety, it's the same kind of basic stuff we should be doing in the classroom is to think about the experience as a modular one and Mm -hmm. making sure that we're not pushing too hard or too long on any one module. Starting with a a quick survey, a poll or something like that, 15 minute mini lecture, then breakout rooms, and then a whole class discussion, right? Four things to do in an hour, keeps things moving along. Whether or not you want to open up the chat, that's another issue. But those kind of basic things to me, I think, can apply in both the face-to-face and online environment. Yeah. Um, there's just, I'll mention one other thing, though, that, again, comes from small teaching online, like even thinking about an asynchronous learning environment. One of the things I really, again, a recommendation that I got from Flower, which I really liked, was the conditional release. Of material. So it's not everything's just available to me as I'm studying or like I'm watching the course videos or whatever it might be. Like I've got to do this, I've got to, then I have to maybe do something and then I get the next thing. And I think that helps keep people's attention moving along through the experience rather than being just this one undifferentiated experience that that it's going to be hard to stay focused through. Um, I'm curious to know what flower, if you have any things that come to mind in terms of keeping people's attention in, in the online space.
3: Again, here's some of these small principles that I knew anyway, and that have become stronger and clearer for me. Things like small chunks of information, small, um, a lot of variety in an asynchronous learning module. So there's lots of activities that are little effective if intentionally designed, those kinds of things. So small chunks, lots of variety, lots of active interaction. In fact, you'll be amused, I, I often talk about my kids and what I'm learning from them. My 16 year old said to me the other day, I hate it when there's just these big chunks of text in Canvas, cause she's <sighs> doing online learning right now. And she said, they need to break it up and yes. I said, Like what? She said, would you quit interviewing me? I
1: do the same thing with my kids. And the other thing that we learn as an online learning designer flower, don't you feel like not to give a learner a video that's like ridiculously long with no guided questions. I can't, I like to find the answers to my own questions, like the retrieval practice or like to go in and like when I find it and I go and get it, it stays with me. But if I'm going to look for something and I get a generic tutorial, I have to sit through for 30 minutes to get the answer. Answer, I'm not that's frustrating keeping those videos like six minutes, five minutes, or short, right? Do you have a recommendation for that for instructors for how short these little tidbits should be?
3: Oh, yeah, for videos, there's very clear research that says six minutes max, and that is challenging for a lot of faculty. So, I get a lot of questions about that. What if it's eight minutes, or maybe it's 12? Okay. But let's not get to the 30 40 50 minute mark and then my other strong recommendation for those even those little short videos is to provide maybe a bulleted list of main points possibly even with a little bit of time stamping so that here's where i'm going to talk about this topic even it's it's at three minutes 45 that way you can just zoom right over to that section if you need to review something so those kinds of those are additional signposts like jim was talking about that helps help learners use their time really effectively
0: Yeah. And then Um, the the related thought, I I guess it it comes a bit out of what you were writing about in Distracted, Jim, is where do people in the education field look for inspiration from outside? And one of the things that I liked in what I got out of Distracted is that you were tapping into other professions and uh, creative pursuits that I think can provide some inspiration where like frequently when instructional design is characterized, perhaps from the outside, it, it sounds a little more like, drudgery uh, at times. And I think talking about the the creative process involved in writing a symphony or designing something intricate and complex, it, it almost added more of the nobility back into the profession that I think it, it is really needed, especially because it's a difficult profession to be in these days because there's so many changing demands and frequently you're under-resourced. So I'd love to get everyone's perspective on like where you get your inspiration and maybe beginning with you Jim because I know that's something that was central to Distract it. Yeah, I and mean, whenever I give
2: talks about the book to faculty about distraction in particular, I always say just think about when do you pay attention to stuff? Like first start with yourself. Like when you're on a Zoom call, like what sends you to your email and what keeps you engaged? But even outside of your work life, what are the things that you do for fun that keep you really engaged? And what can you learn from that experience that you could translate into your classroom? Mm-hmm. I have five kids and they're in high school or college or just graduated. And I, I learn a lot from them too. So I've observed all of them. So it's great to see it from that perspective. And the last thing is, I think it's always helpful to take classes too. Right yes. after the pandemic started, I knew that I had, I had to translate, I had to shift my one class halfway through, but I knew I was going to be teaching online again. So that summer I took a Spanish class because I just enjoy learning Spanish and it was an online class. I learned a lot from that class about how to, you know, what I wanted to do when I was going to be teaching online. And this relates actually to what we were just talking about. The instructor was great. He did a lot of amazing things. But one of the things that he did was he had like hour long lecture videos Hmm. and you know, that was a real problem. And it wasn't just a problem for my attention. I learned there was something else about it. What I found was it's the summertime. I've got kids, I've got a job, all this other stuff. It was hard for me to find an hour. And so if they had been broken up into 15 minutes, not I would have been easier for me to find the time to watch them. And the spacing out of them actually is better for learning. It's much better for me to get the same contact 15 minutes over the course of four days than it is in one hour on a single day. So for all kinds of reasons, Breaking up those videos is, is a good idea, mm-hmm. but that was something I learned from being a learner. I don't think I would've thought of that, that yeah. aspect of it, if I hadn't been in the learning situation myself. Mm-hmm.
1: And prior to the pandemic, a large portion of online learners were untraditional, not in the 18 to 24 age bracket. Mm-hmm. So then mm-hmm. you're talking about people who do have maybe full-time jobs or caring for a family member and juggling that. When you are an online student and you are an adult, you put yourself in their shoes and you're like, okay, I only have 15 minutes right now before I have to pick up kid one from practice or whatever. So it is so helpful to have those timestamps. I completely agree.
0: Yeah. And that. how about uh, the inspiration though, Flower? Where do you look for inspiration? How do you find it? How do you motivate through these challenging times?
3: Oh, sure. So I agree. I think it's really very helpful for faculty to think about their own experience in a range of contexts because that's how they teach anyway given what I would say is a lack of effective pedagogical preparation for teaching, most faculty tend to fall back on their own experience. And so I invite them to do that same thing. Just, Just think about, as Jim was saying, what works for you when you're in a learning context? And again, I also like to expand this to effective communication in general, because if we're not communicating well with our students, and I would even expand that into relating with our students, we're not gonna be as effective in helping them to learn. So for example, I talk to a lot of people about what do we see that works effectively in social media? I don't actually propose that we all need to bring Twitter and Instagram into our classes, I really don't. However, we can learn a lot about the way that we can use tools and communicate effectively and connect with people effectively in some of those platforms. So that's a big source of inspiration for me when I'm thinking about online environments in particular. Yeah. And Don, any other thoughts from you?
1: I just want to say to Jim, I was listening to another podcast that was interviewing him about Distracted. And I was so immersed in it that I kept running and running until it was over. And when it was over, I was like, I used to listen to another podcast. You know why? Because it motivated me. When you think about what works for yourself, what do you enjoy doing when learning is fun Mm -hmm. Then you want to keep doing it. Like I associate movement and exercise with listening to podcasts. And sometimes Mm -hmm. when I'm working at the computer, it can get really like a long day where you were sitting in one spot. I will listen to music or things like that just to help stay motivated. Because I do struggle with distraction. And that was one of the reasons that I was interested in his book. Yeah. I have to shut off all my notifications. I need to go into a place that has a quiet focus. I have to be very intentional about my workspace from working from home with pandemic and three kids and a husband that's also here. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, you were mentioning before uh, how the distracted is focused mainly on what might distract the learner, but there are plenty of things that can uh, distract the instructor uh, any perspective on that it's kind of the stuff we all know
2: the approach i would take to it though is to say again don't think so much about like trying to eliminate distractions from your life they've done research for example on tech fast when people do tech fast and try to like close out everything they're ne- they're never like effective they're like diets they don't work in the long term they might help you for short periods of time but mm-hmm. eventually your habits come back what i suggest to people and i did write a column about this in the Chronicle of higher education because people kept asking me about it was pick the thing that's most important to you in terms of your work life so for me that's going to be my writing and just make sure that i've carved out some time every day where i am going to really devote my time to that and as don said i'm going to shut out notifications i'm going to close my email twitter is not going to be open the only thing open is my word document and i'm at my standing desk right now i can walk around i can do a loop in my house but I, I can't get on anything else, social media or whatever, for mm-hmm. one hour. Then I can take a 10-minute break, and then I'm going to do another hour. And that has been really helpful to me because I, I didn't really work that way before. But this year, especially when there's so many distractions around, yeah. um, including all the other bodies in my house, <laughs> I really had to force myself to do that. And it's a habit that I'm going to now gonna keep going forward, yeah. um, even as they're all now heading back to school.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting how online and some of these new media formats let you fit things into the rest of your life in both good and bad ways. And trying to build some new structure that isn't tied to a physical space is something that I think we're all grappling with as we hopefully start to come back out again into whatever the new normal might be, and I think that's what we wanted to wrap up with here a bit as well, is to get some perspective really from each of you on what's emerging. I know that's something, uh, Flower, you spend a lot of time finger on the pulse trying to see what's emerging in the world of online learning. What have you seen so far? Anything new emerging over the past year that you think would be relevant for folks uh, who are trying to get a sense of where the world is heading?
3: Yes, I've received this question a lot. Faculty want to know um, what is fall 2021 going to look like are we always teaching online now or the opposite end of the the pendulum swing, will we never go into the LMS again and, and we're just gonna really do things in person. So I'm convinced based on my own research and observation that all these new formats are here to stay. I think we must be much more intentional than we had to be because of the pandemic about which formats work in which contexts. But the other thing that I have really spent this last year thinking hard about is how do we apply what we knew about online teaching? Because we do have research. We know what can be effective. How do we apply that to these new formats like Zoom teaching, like synchronous remote, these kinds of things? Mm -hmm. And what has emerged as the most important and still missing factor, I believe, in many online classes without blaming faculty because I believe that institutions have a responsibility to better equip faculty is really keeping focused on the importance of the social and the emotional connections, Mm -hmm. which is something that is talked about a lot in K-12. It is not talked about in the higher ed as much, but I would say, Those social connections and interactions, they happen so naturally and effortlessly in the classroom, but they do require, as we were saying earlier, they require extra effort. And to me, that is the foundational element that really we need to keep our focus on as we move forward, embracing, refining our use of these new formats and our abilities to teach with tech. We, We have to keep that focus on closing the distance through connecting as people. Yeah.
2: Okay, so, but the, well,
3: there
2: was a, a huge door opened right there for flower to talk about her next book project oh yeah Not walk through so flower can you say about you are writing about this i am thank you jim uh, i
3: just finished the manuscript for the spark of online learning um, very excited to have been working very closely with sarah rose kavanaugh with her blessed i wrote that again similar applying the principles of emotion science and how to teach more effectively to how do we use those in our teaching with technology so thank you Jim for the cue Um, uh, really excited about how that book has shaped up again lots of very practical recommendations based on what we know from affective science and learning science to really help students engage in fact I would argue and I felt this way anyway which is why I pitched the book idea to Sarah is that emotions are the most powerful tool that we have available to us in these online environments and putting them to work really serves both us and our students because when we help them engage, as Harriet Schwartz says, they cycle their energy back to us and it's this cycle that, that renews everybody in the, in the learning environment. Great,
2: great awesome. stuff. And for me, I would say that a lot of us who were had not taught online and who use their LMS as basically like a grade book and um, <laughs> a place to store documents, which is pretty much what I had done prior to the pandemic, I think a lot of us learned how many tools are available to us from the online spaces that we've had but just not taken advantage of. And when we switched, I started using the discussion board and again, because Flower has been such a big and eloquent advocate for them. And I loved it actually. So I them. back into my face-to-face classroom, I will use the discussion boards now. I'm not gonna use them as the primary discussion thing, sure. but I'm gonna use them to supplement what happens in the face-to-face environment. And I expect that a lot of us are gonna pick some things that happen to us, some things that we learned about and now start to use, um, have a more integrated approach to our classes, which I think is, is only positive. So mm-hmm. um, that's maybe one positive thing that, w- that might emerge from this uh, really difficult year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And then, and then when we wrap it up here, we typically like to get a perspective outside of the narrower focus that we've had so far. Is there anything out there in the world that's been happening? We're a spotting. show. We're trying to get a read on new and emerging ideas, themes, topics cuisines, uh, you name it. If there's any, anything new and emerging that people might want to walk away with, I'd love to get any feedback. This is the, the free form uh, component of the podcast. So you're able, you can talk about whatever you like, but is there anything new and emerging that, that's sort of capturing your imagination
2: these days? I would say for me, just sticking in the educational realm, I edit a book series. And so it's interesting to see what proposals come in. And they definitely seem to come in waves. You won't have heard anything about this topic for years and then all of a sudden there are like four or five proposals that come in on the same topic first of all right now flower is definitely on the pulse there's a lot of interest in kind of the emotional support aspect of this and building community and all that stuff so i think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of thing emerging over the next several years which is a welcome balance from when we used to just focus more on the cognitive part of it Mm -hmm. but also more and better thinking about how we reach diverse student bodies that are coming onto our campuses today and coming into the online courses, because obviously that that continues to change and evolve. And it's not only about, for example, racial and ethnic diversity, but also about students who have mental health challenges, students who have, who learn in different ways, who are from different socioeconomic strata, like, we're getting like just diversity in, in, in every way possible, which is great. That's like now we're fulfilling the promise of higher education. But we have to start thinking more carefully about how we are attuned to all these different audiences coming into our classrooms.
0: Great stuff. Any other uh, other thoughts? Flower, Dawn?
1: I would say <laughs> UDLs, which is what you're talking mm. about. And then I'm particularly interested in the research of visual aesthetics and how that relates to cognitively how we consume information and how fonts and colors and um, things like that affects the psychology of like how we consume things and what keeps our interest. So I think that's something that still needs to be studied and looked at closer. And then I'm on a very micro level. I'm super excited about the idea of VR. And there's a VR pre-SAT class that I'm going to have my son take where you can stand inside like a pyramid and you have to do an estimation of square footage based on you being inside it. I just love that immersive type of online learning. And I'm just curious to see where that's going to take us with virtual reality, augmented yeah. reality. I think that's the next big thing too.
0: Yeah. Another way to earn that attention with some yeah. of these new and emerging capabilities that are out there. Hopefully we earned our listeners' attention. Thank you, our guests, for uh, joining us. So Flower Dart, Jim Lang, and Don DePerry. thanks everyone for joining us on the show. Thank you.
3: Thank thanks, you. For thanks for having, for having us. us.
0: Yeah. And uh, for our listeners, thank you for making it this long. We appreciate your attention. Please subscribe, tell a friend, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.